Section 35 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 12. Part 1. Shame. Ursula had only two more terms at school. She was studying for her matriculation examination. It was dreary work, for she had very little intelligence when she was disjointed from happiness. Stubbornness and a consciousness of impending fate kept her half-heartedly pinned to it. She knew that soon she would want to become a self-responsible person, and her dread was that she would be prevented. An all-containing will in her for complete independence, complete social independence, complete independence from any personal authority, kept her dullishly at her studies. For she knew that she had always her price of ransom, her femaleness. She was always a woman, and what she could not get because she was a human being, fellow to the rest of mankind, she would get because she was a female, other than the man. In her femaleness she felt a secret riches, a reserve. She had always the price of freedom. However, she was sufficiently reserved about this last resource. The other things should be tried first. There was the mysterious man's world to be adventured upon, the world of daily work and duty, and existence as a working member of the community. Against this she had a subtle grudge. She wanted to make her conquest also of this man's world. So she ground away at her work, never giving it up. Some things she liked. Her subjects were English, Latin, French, mathematics and history. Once she knew how to read French and Latin, the syntax bored her. Most tedious was the close study of English literature. Why should one remember the things one read? Something in mathematics, their cold absoluteness, fascinated her, but the actual practice was tedious. Some people in history puzzled her and made her ponder, but the political parts angered her and she hated ministers. Only in odd streaks did she get a poignant sense of acquisition and enrichment and enlarging from her studies. One afternoon, reading As You Like It, once when, with her blood, she heard a passage of Latin and she knew how the blood beat in a Roman's body, so that ever after she felt she knew the Romans by contact. She enjoyed the vagaries of English grammar because it gave her pleasure to detect the live movements of words and sentences. And mathematics, the very sight of the letters in algebra, had a real lure for her. She felt so much and so confusedly at this time that her face got a queer, wondering, half-scared look, as if she were not sure what might seize upon her at any moment out of the unknown. Odd little bits of information stirred unfathomable passion in her, when she knew that in the tiny brown buds of autumn were folded minute and complete the finished flowers of the summer nine months hence, tiny, folded up and left there, waiting, a flash of triumph and love went over her. I could never die while there was a tree, she said, passionately, sententiously, standing before a great ash in worship. It was the people who, somehow, walked as an upright menace to her. Her life at this time was unformed, palpitating, essentially shrinking from all touch. She gave something to other people, but she was never herself, since she had no self. She was not afraid nor ashamed before trees and birds and the sky, but she shrank violently from people, ashamed she was not as they were, fixed, emphatic, but a wavering, undefined sensibility only, without form or being. Gudrun was at this time a great comfort and shield to her. The younger girl was a lithe, farouche animal, who mistrusted all approach, and would have none of the petty secrecies and jealousies of schoolgirl intimacy. She would have no truck with the tame cats, nice or not, 
because she believed that they were all only untamed cats with a nasty, untrustworthy habit of tameness. This was a great standback for Ursula, who suffered her agonies when she thought a person disliked her, no matter how much she despised that other person. How could anyone dislike her, Ursula Brangwen? The question terrified her and was unanswerable. She sought refuge in Gudrun's natural proud indifference. It had been discovered that Gudrun had a talent for drawing. This solved the problem of the girl's indifference to all study. It was said of her, she can draw marvellously. Suddenly, Ursula found a queer awareness existed between herself and her class mistress, Miss Inger. The latter was a rather beautiful woman of twenty-eight, a fearless-seeming, clean type of modern girl, whose every independence betrays her sorrow. She was clever and expert in what she did, accurate, quick, commanding. To Ursula, she had always given pleasure, because of her clear, decided, yet graceful appearance. She carried her head high, a little thrown back, and Ursula thought there was a look of nobility in the way she twisted her smooth brown hair upon her head. She always wore clean, attractive, well-fitting blouses and a well-made skirt. Everything about her was so well-ordered, betraying a fine, clear spirit, that it was a pleasure to sit in her class. Her voice was just as ringing and clear, and with unwavering, finely-touched modulation. Her eyes were blue, clear, proud, she gave one altogether the sense of a fine-mettled, scrupulously groomed person, and of an unyielding mind. Yet there was an infinite poignancy about her, a great pathos in her lonely, proudly closed mouth. It was after Skrebensky had gone that there sprang up between the mistress and the girl that strange awareness, then the unspoken intimacy that sometimes connects two people who may never even make each other's acquaintance. Before they had always been good friends, in the undistinguished way of the classroom, with the professional relationship of mistress and scholar always present. Now, however, another thing came to pass. When they were in the room together, they were aware of each other, almost to the exclusion of everything else. Winifred Inger felt a hot delight in the lessons when Ursula was present. Ursula felt her whole life begin when Miss Inger came into the room. Then, with the beloved, subtly intimate teacher present, the girl sat as within the rays of some enriching sun, whose intoxicating heat poured straight into her veins. The state of bliss, when Miss Inger was present, was supreme in the girl, but always eager, eager. As she went home, Ursula dreamed of the schoolmistress, made infinite dreams of things she could give her, of how she might make the elder woman adore her. Miss Inger was a Bachelor of Arts who had studied at Newnham. She was a clergyman's daughter of fine family but what Ursula adored so much was her fine, upright, athletic bearing, and her indomitably proud nature. She was proud and free as a man, yet exquisite as a woman. The girl's heart burned in her breast as she set off for school in the morning. So eager was her breast, so glad her feet to travel towards the beloved. Ah, Miss Inger, how straight and fine was her back, how strong her loins, how calm and free her limbs. Ursula craved ceaselessly to know if Miss Inger cared for her. As yet, no definite sign had been passed between the two. Yet surely, surely Miss Inger loved her too, was fond of her, liked her at least more than the rest of the scholars in the class. Yet she was never certain. It might be that Miss Inger cared nothing for her. And yet, and yet, with blazing heart, Ursula felt that if only she could speak to her, touch her, she would know. The summer term came, and with it the swimming class. Miss Inger was to take the swimming class. Then Ursula trembled and was dazed with passion. Her hopes were soon to be realised. 
she would see Miss Inga in her bathing dress. The day came. In the great bath, the water was glimmering pale emerald green, a lovely glimmering mass of colour within the whitish marble-like confines. Overhead, the light fell softly, and the great green body of pure water moved under it as someone dived from the side. Ursula, trembling, hardly able to contain herself, pulled off her clothes, put on her tight bathing suit, and opened the door of her cabin. Two girls were in the water. The mistress had not appeared. She waited. A door opened. Miss Inga came out, dressed in a rust-red tunic like a Greek girl's, tied round the waist, and a red silk handkerchief round her head. How lovely she looked. Her knees were so white and strong and proud, and she was as firm-bodied as Diana. She walked simply to the side of the bath, and with a negligent movement flung herself in. For a moment Ursula watched the white, smooth, strong shoulders, and the easy arms swimming. Then she too dived into the water. Now, ah now, she was swimming in the same water with her dear mistress. The girl moved her limbs voluptuously and swam by herself, deliciously, yet with a craving of unsatisfaction. She wanted to touch the other, to touch her, to feel her. I will race you, Ursula, came the well-modulated voice. Ursula started violently. She turned to see the warm, unfolded face of her mistress looking at her, to her. She was acknowledged. Laughing her own beautiful, startled laugh, she began to swim. The mistress was just ahead, swimming with easy strokes. Ursula could see the head put back, the water flickering upon the white shoulders, the strong legs kicking shadowly. As she swam, blinded with passion, ah, the beauty of the firm, white, cool flesh, ah, the wonderful firm limbs, ah, if only she did not so despise her own thin, dusky fragment of a body, if only she too were fearless and capable. She swam on eagerly, not wanting to win, only wanting to be near her mistress, to swim in a race with her. They neared the end of the bath, the deep end. Miss Inga touched the pipe, swung herself round, and caught Ursula round the waist in the water, and held her for a moment. I won, said Miss Inga, laughing. There was a moment of suspense. Ursula's heart was beating so fast she clung to the rail and could not move. Her dilated, warm, unfolded, glowing face turned to the mistress, as if to her very son. Goodbye, said Miss Inga, and she swam away to the other pupils, taking professional interest in them. Ursula was dazed. She could still feel the touch of the mistress's body against her own. Only this. Only this. The rest of the swimming time passed like a trance. When the call was given to leave the water, Miss Inga walked down the bath towards Ursula. Her rust-red thin tunic was clinging to her. The whole body was defined, firm and magnificent, as it seemed to the girl. I enjoyed our race, Ursula. Did you? said Miss Inga. The girl could only laugh with revealed, open, glowing face. The love was now tacitly confessed, but it was some time before any further progress was made. Ursula continued in suspense, in inflamed bliss. Then one day, when she was alone, the mistress came near to her, and touching her cheek with her fingers, said with some difficulty, Would you like to come to tea with me on Saturday, Ursula? The girl flushed, all gratitude. We'll go to a lovely little bungalow on the Saw, shall we? I stay the weekends there sometimes. Ursula was beside herself. She could not endure till the Saturday came. Her thoughts burned up like a fire. If only it was Saturday. If only it was Saturday. Then Saturday came and she set out. Miss Inga met her in Sawley, and they walked about three miles to the bungalow. It was a moist, warm, cloudy day. The bungalow was a tiny two-room shanty, set on a steep bank. 
Everything in it was exquisite. In delicious privacy, the two girls made tea, and then they talked. Ursula need not be home till about ten o'clock. The talk was led, by a kind of spell, to love. Miss Inga was telling Ursula of a friend, how she had died in childbirth and what she had suffered. Then she told of a prostitute, and of some of her experiences with men. As they talked thus, on the little veranda of the bungalow, the night fell. There was a little warm rain. "'It is really stifling,' said Miss Inga. They watched a train, whose lights were pale in the lingering twilight, rushing across the distance. "'It will thunder,' said Ursula. The electric suspense continued. The darkness sank. They were eclipsed. "'I think I shall go and bathe,' said Miss Inga, out of the cloud-black darkness. "'At night?' said Ursula. "'It is best at night.' Will you come? I should like to. It is quite safe. The grounds are private. We had better undress in the bungalow for fear of the rain, then run down. Shyly, stiffly, Ursula went into the bungalow and began to remove her clothes. The lamp was turned low. She stood in the shadow. By another chair, Winifred Inger was undressing. Soon the naked, shadowy figure of the elder girl came to the younger. Are you ready? she said. One moment. Ursula could hardly speak. The other naked woman stood by, stood near, silent. Ursula was ready. They ventured out into the darkness, feeling the soft air of night upon their skins. I can't see the path, said Ursula. It is here, said the voice, and the wavering, pallid figure was beside her, a hand grasping her arm. And the elder held the younger close against her, close as they went down and by the side of the water, she put her arms round her and kissed her, and she lifted her in her arms, close, saying softly, I shall carry you into the water. Ursula lay still in her mistress's arms, her forehead against the beloved maddening breast. I shall put you in, said Winifred, but Ursula twined her body about her mistress. After a while the rain came down on their flushed hot limbs, startling, delicious. A sudden ice-cold shower burst in a great weight upon them. They stood up to it with pleasure. Ursula received the stream of it upon her breasts and her limbs. It made her cold and a deep bottomless silence welled up in her as if bottomless darkness were returning upon her. So the heat vanished away. She was chilled, as if from a waking up. She ran indoors, a chill, non-existent thing, wanting to get away. She wanted the light, the presence of other people, the external connection with the many. Above all, she wanted to lose herself among natural surroundings. She took leave of her mistress and returned home. She was glad to be on the station with a crowd of Saturday night people, glad to sit in the lighted, crowded railway carriage. Only she did not want to meet anybody she knew. She did not want to talk. She was alone, immune. All this stir and seethe of lights and people was but the rim, the shores of a great inner darkness and void. She wanted very much to be on the seething, partially illuminated shore, for within her was the void reality of dark space. For a time, Miss Inger, her mistress, was gone, she was only a dark void, and Ursula was free as a shade walking in an underworld of extinction, of oblivion. Ursula was glad, with a kind of motionless, lifeless gladness, that her mistress was extinct, gone out of her. In the morning, however, the love was there again, burning, burning. She remembered yesterday, and she wanted more, always more. She wanted to be with her mistress. All separation from her mistress was a restriction from living. Why could she not go to her today, today? Why must she pace about, revoked at Cossethay while her mistress was elsewhere? She sat down and wrote a burning, passionate love letter. She could not help it. The two women became intimate. 
Their lives seemed suddenly to fuse into one inseparable. Ursula went to Winifred's lodging. She spent there her only living hours. Winifred was very fond of water, of swimming, of rowing. She belonged to various athletic clubs. Many delicious afternoons the two girls spent in a light boat on the river, Winifred always rowing. Indeed, Winifred seemed to delight in having Ursula in her charge, in giving things to the girl, in filling and enriching her life. So that Ursula developed rapidly during the few months of her intimacy with her mistress. Winifred had a scientific education. She had known many clever people. She wanted to bring Ursula to her own position of thought. They took religion and rid it of its dogmas, its falsehoods. Winifred humanised it all. Gradually it dawned upon Ursula that all the religion she knew was but a particular clothing to a human aspiration. The aspiration was the real thing. The clothing was a matter almost of national taste or need. The Greeks had a naked Apollo, the Christians a white-robed Christ, the Buddhists a royal prince, the Egyptians there a Cyrus. Religions were local and religion was universal. Christianity was a local branch. There was as yet no assimilation of local religions into universal religion. In religion there were the two great motives of fear and love. The motive of fear was as great as the motive of love. Christianity accepted crucifixion to escape from fear. Do your worst to me that I may have no more fear of the worst. But that which was feared was not necessarily all evil, and that which was love not necessarily all good. Fear shall become reverence, and reverence is submission and identification. Love shall become triumph, and triumph is delight in identification. So much she talked of religion, getting the gist of many writings. In philosophy she was brought to the conclusion that the human desire is the criterion of all truth and all good. Truth does not lie beyond humanity, but is one of the products of the human mind and feeling. There is really nothing to fear. The motive of fear in religion is base and must be left to the ancient worshippers of power, worship of Moloch. We do not worship power in our enlightened souls. Power is degenerated to money and Napoleonic stupidity. Ursula could not help dreaming of Moloch. Her god was not mild and gentle, neither lamb nor dove. He was the lion and the eagle. Not because the lion and the eagle had power, but because they were proud and strong. They were themselves. They were not passive subjects of some shepherd or pets of some loving woman or sacrifices of some priest. She was weary to death of mild, passive lambs and monotonous doves. If the lamb might lie down with the lion, it would be a great honour to the lamb, but the lion's powerful heart would suffer no diminishing. She loved the dignity and self-possession of lions. She did not see how lambs could love, Lambs could only be loved. They could only be afraid and tremblingly submit to fear and become sacrificial, or they could submit to love and become beloveds. In both they were passive, raging, destructive lovers seeking the moment when fear is greatest and triumph is greatest. The fear not greater than the triumph, the triumph not greater than the fear. These were no lambs nor doves. She stretched her own limbs like a lion or a wild horse. Her heart was relentless in its desires. It would suffer a thousand deaths, but it would still be a lion's heart when it rose from death. A fiercer lion she would be, a surer, knowing herself different from and separate from the great conflicting universe that was not herself. Winifred Inger was also interested in the women's movement. The men will do no more. They have lost the capacity for doing, said the elder girl. They fuss and talk, but they are really inane. They make everything fit into an old, inert idea. Love is a dead idea to them. They don't come to one and love one. They come to an idea and they say, you are my idea, so they embrace themselves. As if I were any man's idea. 
as if I exist because a man has an idea of me, as if I will be betrayed by him, lend him my body as an instrument for his idea, to be a mere apparatus of his dead theory. But they are too fussy to be able to act. They are all impotent. They can't take a woman. They come to their own idea every time and take that. They are like serpents trying to swallow themselves because they are hungry. Ursula was introduced by her friend to various women and men, educated, unsatisfied people, who still moved within the smug provincial society as if they were nearly as tame as their outward behaviour showed, but who were inwardly raging and mad. End of section 35